Hi, this is Lily DeHoya Sanderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Thanks so much for joining me today. We're talking about the book of Ruth, which is a four-chapter book, and the first three chapters of 1 Samuel. Although, to be honest, we're probably going to cover a few more chapters beyond that as well to kind of complete the theme here, because today I want to talk about some of the parenting examples we have in these chapters. And I'll be brief about the parenting example of Naomi here, because Naomi is an example to me. You know, we don't have a very lengthy record here, but we do know that her two daughters-in-law loved her and loved her deeply. Even though Orpah returns to her family and to the Moabites, Ruth stays with her. And Orpah also loved her and had to be kind of convinced to, to go back. But Ruth, even with that kind of persuasion, was determined to go on with Naomi to a land that she didn't know and people that she didn't know. And she was willing to embrace the God of Naomi. And that's a pretty powerful tribute to this wonderful mother-in-law. Now, I know those relationships sometimes get tricky, and I work in counseling with people who sometimes have difficult mothers-in-law or difficult daughters-in-laws, so it can go either way. And this is not an indictment on that. It takes two people to be willing to give and receive this kind of love that went both ways with these wonderful women. Of course, we know this wonderful, wonderful statement that Ruth makes is recorded here in chapter one that is often used in expressions of love in all relationships, often in marriage even. We'll hear people adding this to to wedding celebrations. Ruth chapter 1, verse 16 then, the beautiful words, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. Now again, you know, thinking about the fact that these in-law relationships are not always easy, Naomi accomplished something really lovely, as did Ruth, where they accepted each other in a marvelous way. They were both good, righteous women who extended love freely to each other and, and received it freely. So even after Ruth and Orpah's husbands died, and of course Naomi's husband had died before then, and the daughters-in-law were left childless, Naomi, accompanied by Ruth, who will not leave her, go back to Naomi's home in Bethlehem. And there she follows the instructions of her mother-in-law, who knows the culture and tells her to go gleaning, and she gleans in Boaz's field, and you know the story. It's a lovely story. Something that I don't know if I'd noticed every time, but when Boaz finds her there on the threshing floor and knows that she is invoking the law that allows her to be married to a near kinsman, the nearest kinsman of her husband, so that she can raise up seed in Israel— He says something kind of tender here. This is chapter 3 in Ruth, and this is Boaz, who says, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter, for thou hast shewed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether poor or rich. In other words, Boaz was a little older, enough older that he's making a comment here that, you know, blessed are you that you aren't just going after some young guy that you could probably easily marry, but that you were honoring your kinsman. And of course, Naomi knew that Boaz was a very good man. He clearly had that reputation and and was kind to her, a stranger in that land, by having his people treat her well and, and inviting her to glean only in his land so that he could assure that she was well taken care of, and that without any thought of marriage. But then when she invokes this law, of course, Boaz realizes that there is a nearer kinsman, and so he has to go through the appropriate steps in front of ten elders in Israel in order to have the other kinsman relinquish his claim so that Boaz can marry Ruth, which he does. And a nice ending here, of course, because Ruth was not of the tribes of Israel. She was a descendant of the peoples of Lot. The Moabites were from Lot, who was, of course, the nephew of Abraham. So there is a, a relationship, but, but Israel came later. So Ruth is not of the house of Israel, but God has this law of adoption that we've mentioned before. 
So he's not really concerned about bloodlines, except as that blesses the world and as he can use that to bring dispensations of the gospel, you know, bring certain spirits into that lineage so that they can fulfill certain foreordained purposes. So it is important to recognize the history of the House of Israel, but it's also important to realize that anyone can join in and be adopted into the House of Israel and have all the full fellowship of anyone who could be born there, and that anyone born in the House of Israel, for instance, these you know rebellious, stiff-necked people who often are what we're reading about here, can lose their position as the House of Israel because they don't live their covenants and they reject God and, and the great blessings that He offers. And again, I I referenced John the Baptist in the New Testament who tells to the Pharisees, you know, stop bragging about having Abraham unto your father, because God can raise up from these stones children unto Abraham. In other words, don't, don't think that that lineage protects you from the consequences of your own choices. You may have a good lineage, but, you know, if you don't live up to those opportunities and the invitations of the Lord to make and keep sacred covenants, then you're out. And anyone who comes in through adoption because they accept the covenants and live the covenants is in. So nice example of that here, of course, Ruth has a son whose name is Obed, and Obed is the father of Jesse, and Jesse is the father of David, who becomes King David, kind of the peak of the golden age in Israel. Of course, we also know that Christ came from this line. So Ruth is an ancestress to Christ. Lovely little story. Now, in the first book of Samuel, we're going to get some different parenting examples. These are not going to necessarily work out so well, although first I should mention Hannah is talked about here, who was a second wife who was childless, and when they go up to the priests, to the to, you know the tabernacle to make offerings and so on, she's praying, and Eli, the high priest there at the tabernacle, thinks that she's drunk, so he kind of rebukes her and She explains, and he says, well, the Lord grant unto thee thy petition. Now, her petition is to have a child, especially a son, and she says that she will give that child to the Lord and dedicate him to the service of the Lord. So she does go home and conceive and have a son, Samuel. And Samuel is a huge character in the Old Testament, a very righteous prophet, considered the last of the judges. So we've had you know, discussion through the judges or the heroes of Israel. And sometimes a righteous man was raised up to help deliver Israel from her enemies. Well, Samuel is considered the last of that series of of heroes. And of course, he does function as a prophet and as a righteous man. Chapter 2 of 1 Samuel begins with a kind of a song of praise that Hannah sings to the Lord because of her gratitude for this. And she does fulfill her promise to the Lord that she will bring Samuel to serve in the tabernacle with Eli and be tutored by Eli. And the Lord is very generous then with Hannah again and gives her five other children so that she has posterity. But Samuel remains faithful, and every year Hannah comes to the tabernacle and brings a little coat that she's made for Samuel as he grows. So still very invested in this son that she's given to the Lord. We do need to mention here that not every prayer is answered in the way Hannah's is. Yes, she's faithful, and yes, she keeps her covenant to the Lord. Nevertheless, there are many faithful people who keep their covenants, who have prayed for children and have not received them, or have prayed for other worthy desires and have not been granted their desires, at least not in this life. And I think it's important to to just take a moment and not read this, and if you have had that experience— All of us have to some extent, but if you have a particular righteous desire that has not been granted by the Lord in this life, I would really invite you to understand that the Lord's timing is the Lord's timing, but this does not mean He doesn't answer worthy prayers for righteous desires, just that His timing is better than ours. And although we may not understand that in this life, I really would would challenge all of us to trust it, to trust it and to give up any desire for bitterness or any tendency toward bitterness or anger at the Lord. And, and you know, too often we hear people who say, well, I prayed for something and I didn't get it. And, and then their faith is shaken and they are vulnerable to leaving the church, or perhaps they do leave it behind because their prayers weren't answered in the time or the way that they wanted. And that makes me so, so sad because there's a really, a real lack of understanding there about how the Lord works with his people that he does say that he will grant unto us our righteous desires in his time. 
So if we can trust that timing, we're so much better off in life. We're so much better able to increase our faith, increase our trust and our connection with and our relationship to our Heavenly Father and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Trusting in them. You know, there really is a thousand years during the millennium that is still part of the second estate, that is still part of our probationary period that we have for God to resolve all kinds of issues and heal wounds and restore things that are lost. I don't know exactly how he's going to do that, and I wouldn't presume to try to read the mind of deity in these details. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I choose to trust it. I choose to believe that when the Lord says he will fulfill his promises to his righteous children, that he will. And many of those promises, which don't seem to be fulfilled of the Lord in this lifetime, will be taken care of in the millennium. So, you know, faint not along the way. Stay faithful, stay on course, and trust in the Lord. You know, time is measured unto man, not to God. And sometimes I think, you know, this life can seem so long when we're not getting the desires of our heart. Nevertheless, it really will pass by and we'll look back and say, how wonderful that I chose to remain faithful during this this small period of time in the expanse of eternity so that I could receive all the blessings that the Lord had for me. So let us faint not. Let us be believing and continue to trust in his promises being fulfilled in his time and his place. Now we get to Eli and and his sons. And Eli is you know, the father of, of two, at least, sons that are very wicked. So we're going to read about them in 1 Samuel 2, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. This is a pretty negative descriptor, talking about people who are following their lusts and doing whatever they want and pagan in in their activities and so on, certainly not covenant keepers or followers. And yet they are sons of the high priest, and so they serve in the temples or in the tabernacle, and they receive the offerings and so on of the people, and they are abusing this position horribly. Look at verse 16 toward the end. Somebody says, look, let me let me burn the fat first before I give you the meat. Now, the, the priests were able to get um, their portion of meat from offerings, but they were supposed to wait until the ritual was satisfied. And when some of the people would say, wait a minute, you can take as much as you want as soon as I finish you know, the commandments of the Lord in offering this sacrifice. And the sons would reply, nay, this is, as I said, toward the end of verse 16 in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, nay, but thou shalt give it me now, and if not, I will take it by force. So this is how they're dealing with these sacred offices that they hold, abusing them, taking what they want, not honoring the Lord at all. And then in verse 17, wherefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. They didn't honor it at all. They were abusing their positions. Now we see in verse 22 and 23 that he knows, that Eli knows what his sons are doing. So let's read verse 22. Now Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto all Israel and how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So they're having sexual relationships with women who come to make offerings and so on. So this this is gross gross sin. And as representatives of God, because they hold positions in the Aaronic priesthood to help with the, you know, officiating and the ritual offerings that people bring, and they are taking advantage of that position to steal things, to dishonor the Lord in the way the offering is done so that they can have what they want. And and now they're like sleeping around with these, these women that come. And Eli says in verse 23, Why do ye such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. In verse 24, Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. Ye make the Lord's people to transgress. And then in 25, If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, they hearkened not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. So even he's warning them, you know, the Lord isn't going to put up with this. How can, you, how can you defend yourself in front of the Lord when you have these callings and yet you are being so sacrilegious and, and defiling your office and making the people sin? So even though Eli's warning them of the final consequences here, they don't care. And then skipping down to verse 27, there came a man of God. Now, we don't know if that's a, a prophet of some kind that has lived amongst the people that we don't know of particularly, or if, it, if it's an angel, but some heavenly messenger, obviously, 
comes to warn Eli and says, this is partway through verse 27, Thus saith the Lord, Did I plainly appear unto the house of thy father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? Like, let's review. Didn't I, didn't I show up for the children of Israel there in Egypt? And verse 28, And did I choose him out of all the tribe of Israel to be my priest, to offer up mine altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? And did I give unto the house of thy father all the offerings made by fire of the children of Israel? So he's saying, look, let's review. Didn't I raise up Aaron and his seed, his family, to be officiators in these sacred offerings unto the Lord? Did I not do this? And, and then he says, verse 29, Wherefore kick ye at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my habitation, and honorest thy sons above me. There's the key phrase right there. Honorest thy sons above me to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Wherefore, and then here comes the warning, the Lord God of Israel saith, I said indeed that thy house and the house of thy father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord saith, be it far from me. For them that honor me, I will honor, and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Verse 31, Behold, the days come that I will cut off thine arm and the arm of thy father's house, that there shall not be an old man in thine house. So this is, this is a curse that is going to come upon Eli because he honored his sons above God. Now let's just think about that. How did he do that? Well, he knew of what they were doing, and he knew that they held these offices underneath his stewardship. They were within his stewardship. Eli could easily have released them, basically, and even brought them up for judgment because of their sins. There were specific penalties in the law of Moses for those who committed sacrilege or blasphemy or, or were vile, especially in a position of, of authority like this, but he didn't. He ignored the well, he didn't completely ignore it. He actually talked to them about it, but he did nothing about it. So he let them continue to commit this really gross and sacrilegious behavior in the tabernacle of the Lord and to cause all this sin. So in verse 34, the man of God says, there'll be a sign unto thee that shall come upon thy two sons. In one day they shall die, both of them. And I will raise me up a faithful priest that will do according to that which is in mine heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house. And that's talking about posterity, and it's Samuel. Samuel is the one who is going to be the, the priest, the high priest and prophet of Israel, the last judge of this period of time, and he will be a righteous person, and God will trust him. So anyway, this is a pretty terrible thing that is going to come upon Eli, as prophesied by this man of God. And then we have the story in chapter 3, where you know, in, in the night, Samuel hears his name being called. He goes to Eli to see what's wanted. Eli didn't call him, and this happens three times. The last time, Eli realizes that the Lord has selected Samuel. So, I mean, that must have been humbling in some respect, although he had already had his chance to repent and he hadn't done it. But he does say to Samuel, he instructs him, well, if this happens again, answer, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. And that's what Samuel does. And then God repeats the promised consequences that will come to Eli's house because Eli did not stop his sons or correct them from, from blaspheming and, and being sacrilegious in their office. And Samuel obviously has a little reluctance about telling that to Eli when Eli asks what the Lord has said. But he does say, you need to tell me everything. And Samuel repeats what the Lord has said about Eli's house. So this is the, you know, kind of the handing over of the baton to Samuel. And this is a tragic story, but there's a, a really important message here. I think that we can take away from this cautionary tale and make sure that we don't fall into this similar error inadvertently, not because we don't love the Lord, but because we may end up trying to honor something more than we honor the Lord. And again, I'll explain a little bit more about that later. I do want to mention that interestingly here, as Samuel grows, he also has sons who are not righteous. So as he becomes older and has grown sons, they're appointed judges in Israel, and Samuel hears an evil report about them too, that they're taking bribes. So they're perverting some of their judgments for money or for other you know goods that are exchanged for a better verdict or whatever, a better judgment. 
And Samuel is grieved by that. Now, the Lord does not deal with Samuel the way he dealt with Eli. So I want to just say something about that. I want to say that, you know, again, we've, we've got a sketchy record. We don't know all the details. We do know that Samuel's sons were not officiating as priests in the tabernacle. So there is a pretty significant difference there. They certainly had positions of authority as judges, but they were not handling the offerings. We also don't hear that they're, you know, sleeping around with women. We don't know the details on that, you know, but it doesn't sound like that. That's not mentioned in the record. It is mentioned that they're taking bribes and they're not desecrating offerings again. So not righteous men, perhaps not, however, I mean, and I wouldn't say perhaps, honestly, it's not the same level of sacrilege. What Eli and his sons were doing was really to disrespect the Lord himself, because these were the Lord's sacred rituals. This is offerings to be done in a certain way by righteous men who held these offices in the Aaronic priesthood. And he lets the sons, you know, defile themselves and other people and disrespect the Lord himself. That is really serious sacrilege and blasphemy. So, you know, we are talking about different levels of disrespect toward God. More than that, however, I want to mention that we know that God is just. So by definition, there was a distinct difference between the way Samuel parented and the way Eli parented. Otherwise, God would have treated them the same way. He says again and again, and we can either believe it or not, and I hope we'll believe it, that he has no respect of persons. He doesn't have favorites. He loves them who will have him to be their God. Samuel does choose to worship the Lord and to put him in a primary position. We don't know the details of how he handles his sons, but we know that God saw something different in Samuel and the way he handled that. And again, the sons were in a different office. They weren't in a position of authority, however. So I'm just saying that I believe that God does not favor one over the other. He, he keeps telling us that I believe him. So I'm going to trust that there were significant differences in the way Eli parented here and Samuel parents. Let's finish the story of Eli, which is tragic, and this is not necessarily in our reading, but it comes right after the reading here. We've just finished chapter 3. And in chapter 4, the Philistines come to battle against Israel, and the people are being pushed back. The Israelites are being pushed back, and many of them slain. So people say, let's fetch the Ark of the Covenant out of Shiloh. And it says that Eli's two sons, Phineas and Hophni, are there in Shiloh with the ark, and they bring it to the battlefield. It doesn't mention that Eli gave permission or that he was there, so we're not sure if he was involved with that decision. It doesn't sound like it in some respects, but they take him to the battle, and the Philistines are afraid because, again, the Philistines, this is chapter 4, verse Eight, woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. But they say, you know, acquit yourself as men. So they go into battle against this power that they already know about and have heard about for generations now. But in verse 10, the Philistines fought and, the, and Israel was smitten. And verse 11, the ark of God was taken and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. So this is a fulfillment of the prophecy of the man of God that Eli's sons will be slain. But that's not enough. In verse 13, Eli is sitting on a seat by the wayside watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And that's why, you know, it's hard to say whether he knew or not, but he was scared that the ark was not where it belonged in Shiloh. And then men come back with this news of the Philistines' defeat of the Israelites Verse 14, Eli hears the noise and the crying, what meaneth the noise of this tumult? And the man comes in hastily and tells Eli, and now Eli in verse 15 is 98 years old, and he can't see well. And in verse 16, he says, I am he that came out of the army, and I fled today out of the army. And in verse 17, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there have been also a great slaughter among the people, and thy two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God is taken. In verse 18, when this mention of the ark of God is made, Eli falls from off the seat backward by the side of the gate, his neck breaks, and he dies. And then in that same day, his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, is with child, this is verse 19, near to being delivered. She hears that the ark of God was taken and her husband dead, and she goes into labor. 
And about the time of her death, the women that stood by her say, fear not for thou hast born a son, but she answered not. So she dies too. Basically, the house of Eli is destroyed. Now, again, these chapters are not really included in our reading, but they're pretty good reading because then we learn in chapter 5 that the Philistines, you know, now that they have this ark, knowing that it's, it represents the power of this God who brought the Israelites out of Egypt, they put it in the house of Dagon. This is verse 2. And when they get up early the next morning, Dagon has fallen flat on his face. The statue of Dagon has fallen flat on his face in front of the ark. So they set it upright again. And the next morning they come in, and not only has Dagon fallen flat on his face, but his head is broken off and his hands have broken off the statue. So it says in verse 4 that only the stump of Dagon was left to him. So anyway, pretty strong signaling here from the power of God that they better not have the ark. But not only that, he afflicts them with boils. They call them emeralds. And many die because of this affliction, whatever it is exactly. So they gather together the leaders and they say, what are we going to do? Because we're all going to die. So they decide they better give it back and they add an offering to the ark to kind of appease God. And it's like five golden mice. Interesting. And they take it to a place where the Israelites are, where, where some of the tribe of Israel are, and they leave the ark there. And then the Israelites look inside the ark and see what's there. And a whole group of these people look inside the ark, and they are slain. In chapter 6, verse 19, it even gives us a number. It says, He smote the men of Beth Shemash because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. Even he smote the people, 50,000 and threescore and ten men. So that's 50,000 and 70 men. And the people lamented. Well, you know, God has given them strict parameters concerning these sacred artifacts, and they don't listen. They don't listen. And even with these really serious consequences, there still is no just default respect toward God. And, and again, try to, try to see this trajectory. These people are stiff-necked. They are stubborn. They set themselves as above God thinking that we know better than God, and he can make these rules, but we're going to do it our way, and we still are going to complain when the Philistines or other enemies come against us and ask why he's not helping us. Well, he's not helping them the way that he would help them if they would only be obedient. So this is a great tragedy of Israel that just continues all the way to the end of the Old Testament. So as I read through these chapters and and thought about them and talked with my husband about them, you know, a strong thought came to my mind about how important it is for us to trust the Lord and how the Lord tests us in our trust because He wants a purified people, a Zion people who have chosen Him above all else, who default always to obedience, even when we don't fully understand And we've seen examples of this from the beginning, right? Adam and Eve offered sacrifices in the Garden of Eden because they had been instructed to do so. They didn't understand until after they'd had many children who had even grown up and married within themselves and paired off and gone to settle the land. It's not until after all those years that an angel comes and says, why do you do this? And they say, we don't know, but we've been told to do this. You know, the Lord commanded us. And then the angel explains to them that this is a similitude of the only begotten Son of God, who will come and be the Lamb that is slain for all the world. So even without having that understanding of that sacred and beautiful sacrifice that was being symbolized by this offering of the Lamb, they were obedient, and they were obedient for years and years and years. I mean, so many times we see this repeated by people of faith. I want to mention another one before we get into some of the quotes that I want to share. And this is Abraham. Abraham also, who trusted the Lord so much that even though he had a soft spot, you know, some some hang-ups about fatherhood, given his own father tried to get him sacrificed at the altar of an idol, even then, even with those tender feelings and that sensitive spot, when the Lord tells him to send his son Ishmael away, because he's not the covenant son, he's not the son through whom the Abrahamic covenant will continue for the world. He does. He trusts God. 
You know, that must have been so difficult for him to send away his beloved child that might turn back and say someday, you know, well, did my dad even love me? And he he nevertheless trusted the Lord. And the Lord said, I'll make a great nation of him. I will not forget him. I will not forget him. So Abraham obeys. And then, of course, the capstone event of Abraham's life, perhaps, is the offering of his son Isaac. And we talk about this in using the term Abrahamic sacrifice. We talk about this, about how incredible this sacrifice is that Abraham offered unto the Lord, because the Lord required it, because the Lord commanded. And this ultimate test was one that Abraham passed because he trusted the Lord. He rose up early the next morning. He didn't linger. He didn't wait. He rose up early the next morning and traveled to the place that the Lord had appointed for him to offer up this son of the covenant that for whom he has waited a hundred years and to offer him as a sacrifice to a God who doesn't require human sacrifice. And Abraham, with his own hangups about having been offered as a human sacrifice to a false god and saved by an angel, does not hesitate. He obeys because he trusts the Lord. And his trust is rewarded because Abraham now is in the presence of God and will be forever and ever as one of the great patriarchs that has been an example for all of us throughout the history of the world. And God has used this iconic moment, this willingness that Abraham shows, this trust in the Lord that he shows in offering his only son. And he, and he gives this to us as, as a reminder of what is required of those who ultimately qualify for the kingdom, who ultimately choose glory, the highest glory that God offers to his children who obey. Remember from Doctrine and Covenants section 101, these are verses 4 and 5, Therefore, and he's speaking about us, right? His covenant people. Therefore, they must needs be chastened and tried, even as Abraham, who was commanded to offer up his only son. For all those who will not endure chastening but deny me cannot be sanctified. That's clear. That's clear that we, if we want to have the blessings of Abraham in the hereafter, We need to be tried as Abraham so that the Lord can see that we too trust him above all else. More than the things that matter the most to us, we put it all on the altar in order to obey the Lord and demonstrate our trust. Some continuing thoughts about this Abrahamic sacrifice. This is from President Kimball, Spencer W. Kimball. The patriarch Abraham sorely tried, obeyed faithfully when commanded by the Lord to offer his son Isaac upon the altar. Blind obedience? No. He knew that God would require nothing of him which was not for his ultimate good. How that good could be accomplished, he did not understand. Isn't that beautifully put? That this isn't blind obedience, even though he didn't understand how it was all going to come out But he knew that God would require nothing of him which was not for his ultimate good. And this is so essential in our building trust in the Lord and having our faith stretch into this this enduring trust that we believe him when he says that he can consecrate our affliction for our good, that, that all our wounds will be healed, that all our tears will be dried, and that we'll be replaced with with more than we can contain of the blessings, the joy, the comfort, the everlasting peace that God promises. A statement by Ezra Taft Benson. When men obey commands of a creator, it is not blind obedience. That's a pretty cool statement too. When men obey the commands of a creator, it is not blind obedience because we have come to know how good and loving this creator is, and we trust it. So it's not blind. It's a choice that we make to obey someone that we have come to know and revere and love and to believe. Benson also stated, whatever God requires is right, no matter what it is, although we may not see the reason thereof until long after the events transpire. 
And we've spoken about that a little bit. It may be a long time before we see all that God is going to do with our sacrifice. This is a statement from the Discourses of Brigham Young. President Young said, If we obtain the glory that Abraham obtained, we must do so by the same means that he did. If we are ever prepared to enjoy the society of Enoch, Noah, Melchizedek, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or of their faithful children and of the faithful prophets and apostles, we must pass through the same experience and gain the knowledge, intelligence, and endowments that will prepare us to enter into the celestial kingdom of our Father and God. So think about that again. If we obtain the glory that Abraham obtained, we must do so by the same means that he did. If we're going to enjoy the society of all these great people who have passed on before, qualifying for celestial glory, having chosen glory above all else, we must pass through the same experience and gain the knowledge, intelligence, and endowments that will prepare us to enter into the celestial kingdom of our Father and God. Going on, Brigham Young, how many of the Latter-day Saints will endure all these things? and be prepared to enjoy the presence of the Father and the Son. Every trial and experience you have passed through is necessary for your salvation. So his question lingers there. How many of us will be willing to do that? John Taylor says, I heard Joseph Smith say in preaching to the Twelve in Nauvoo that the Lord would get hold of their heartstrings and wrench them, and that they would have to be tried as Abraham was tried. Well, some of the twelve could not stand it. They faltered and fell by the way. It was not everybody that could stand what Abraham stood. And Joseph said that if God had known any other way whereby he could have touched Abraham's feelings more acutely and more keenly, he would have done so. That is a fascinating statement to me. Again, John Taylor saying that Joseph Smith taught this principle, that if we want what Abraham has, that we must be tried as Abraham was tried. And that in doing that preparatory work and God preparing a customized curriculum for each of us who has the desire for celestial glory, that God would get hold of our heartstrings and wrench them. Now, why? Because he's a cruel, heartless God? Of course not. Because he is a loving God, and he knows our potential. He knows our potential is nothing less than to be as his son, Jesus Christ, to attain the stature of deity. This is an incredible doctrine. It's an incredible opportunity. It is not for the faint-hearted. And that's what this message is, that if we want it, we must be prepared to have our heartstrings wrenched as God helps us to grow into the stature of the celestial. He helps us to become firmer in the faith, complete in our trust, extensive in our understanding that God would require nothing of us that is not ultimately for our good. And knowing him for whom he is, for a God who loves us and wants us to accept this invitation to become what we were created to become— not all of us will do it. As John Taylor says, some of the 12 could not stand it. They faltered and fell by the way. It was not everybody that could stand where Abraham stood. And then this tender statement, and Joseph said that if God had known any other way whereby he could have touched Abraham's feelings more acutely and more keenly, he would have done so. This is the echo that I hear from the temple all the time, from the Garden of Eden, where Eve decides to take of the fruit and says what? Is there no other way? Is there no other way? For decades, that has resonated in my mind when confronted with challenges, with hard things sometimes. But I say it now in kind of a wry way because I know the answer. I know the answer. There is no other way. If there were another way, God would have provided it because he doesn't do anything that is not perfectly engineered for our development, for our progress, for our growth into, into beings of light, intelligence, and power as he is. There is no other way. 
So it is our choice whether we accept the tutoring of the Lord, if we accept the stretching of the Lord, if we accept the challenges and the sacrifices, even to a point of Abrahamic sacrifice, can we choose to do the will of the Lord? Do we sufficiently trust Him? Can we grow into that trust? And I testify we can. We are fully capable of becoming as Abraham was and as he is now. We are fully capable of trusting this great God of ours, the Creator, who does not do things that are unnecessary, but does only that which is calculated to bless us in the long run. It will always bless us in the long run in a way that will swallow up our pain. It will swallow up our wounds. And we will be glad of those wounds because it will allow us to feel a fullness of joy in a way that we could not have imagined. So why am I talking about Abrahamic sacrifice when I started out talking about parents? Well, because as I read through this and thought about it, I thought, there is currently an Abrahamic sacrifice on the table for many of our members, many of our wonderful, active faithful members in the church are being wrenched in their very heartstrings in a parenting situation that is so difficult. And yet, in spite of this difficulty, please understand that the Lord knows that we are capable of putting our trust in Him and that this is the path of exaltation. This is the path of completion, of progress, of joy. And there is joy in the end, there is joy in even the journey when we understand how God is working with us. And I'm talking about children who are being swept up in our struggles of same-sex attraction and even now transgenderism. Or we could use that whole, you know, acronym LGBTQ+. You know, there's so many now that are being added to this list of trouble with understanding who they are and how they can be, and how to find peace in in understanding themselves, peace with their Heavenly Father, peace with the relationship with their Creator, and trust in Him that He has a plan for them that is a, a happy ending if they will obey. Now, we cannot control our children. Control really is a myth. I've talked about that before. It's more about influence than anything else. And even that is limited because when our children are in this kind of pain, and it is pain, let me please be clear, this is great pain on the part of of our children or any person of any age who is not sure who they are or whom they are to love. And yet God continues to clarify that his Commandments are for our good. They are not to bring destruction. They are to bring progress and development and joy in the end. I know this is a sensitive subject, and please understand that it is not my desire to offend anybody with what I say. But I also trust in God, and I trust in His Word, and I know that it is always the best choice. In fact, the only choice, if we wish to be His, if we wish to qualify for the kingdom of God here and moreover in the hereafter. I'm going to quote from some speeches that touch on these things with tenderness, and I hope that's what comes through in the words of these prophets. Elder Jeff Holland at BYU in August of 2021. Let me go no farther before declaring unequivocally my love and that of my brethren for those who live with this same-sex challenge and so much complexity that goes with it. Too often the world has been unkind, in many instances crushingly cruel, to these our brothers and sisters, and maybe our sons and daughters. Like many of you, we have spent hours with them, and we have wept and prayed and wept again in an effort to offer love and hope while keeping the gospel strong and the obedience to commandments evident in every individual life. Notice the juxtaposition. The compassion 
the love, the desire to support and show that love, not only their own love, but the love of God through their words and actions, while keeping the gospel strong and the obedience to the commandments evident. In other words, our love for people who are in pain and are struggling and start to lose their understanding of who they are does not include or should not include a throwing over of our determination to obey commandments and to testify of the importance and the blessing of doing so. Going on, Elder Holland says, but it will assist all of us. It will assist everyone trying to provide help in this matter. If things can be kept in some proportion and balance in the process, for example, we have to be careful that love and empathy do not get interpreted as condoning and advocacy. You see this, that love and empathy not get mistaken for condoning and advocacy. We can love and empathize with people who are in pain or people who are struggling or losing their way. And we should. We should always love and empathize with them. But it should not be interpreted, and we don't want it to be interpreted as condoning or advocacy. Because why would we advocate or condone behaviors for a loved one that we know can never bring them happiness, that can never bring them a full enjoyment of all the potential that God has given each one of us? Going on or that orthodoxy and loyalty to principle, which is what we should all have for the principles of the gospel. Loyalty and orthodoxy concerning those principles is something that is required of us if we want to qualify as a Zion people, if we want to qualify as did Abraham for the kingdom of God, that our orthodoxy and loyalty to principle not be interpreted as unkindness or disloyalty to people. So often this is what's happening in the world. The minute you stand up for principles that are uncomfortable to some people, they think that we are unloving and disloyal to them. And that is not the same thing. It may be interpreted that way by people in this world, even by the people we love. But we must not make that mistake. We must be clear that there is a difference between love and empathy as opposed to condoning an advocacy of something that cannot bring ultimate progression and happiness. And we also need to understand that our loyalty and orthodoxy in our principles, as given by God himself, are not being unkind. That is not the same as being unkind or disloyal. That I can actually stand up for my beliefs in God's principles and not be disloyal to the people I love, even if they mistake it for disloyalty or characterize it as a lack of love. Elder Holland again, as near as I can tell, Christ never once withheld his love from anyone, but he also never once said to anyone, because I love you, you are exempt from keeping my commandments. That is a powerful truth. I'm going to repeat it. As near as I can tell, Christ never once withheld his love from anyone, but he also never once said to anyone, because I love you, you are exempt from keeping my commandments. Elder Holland going on, we are tasked with trying to strike that same sensitive, demanding balance in our lives. In another speech called The Cost and Blessings of Discipleship in April of 2014, so several years ago, Elder Holland said this, Jesus clearly understood what many in our modern culture seem to forget, that there is a crucial difference between the commandment to forgive sin, which he had an infinite capacity to do, and the warning against condoning it, which he never, ever did even once. An enormous difference there. And our culture has lost that distinction. So often, in fact, we have this social justice Jesus that people talk about who's just going to forgive everything and let everyone come to the, you know, highest kingdom. Like everybody's going to heaven. Because Christ is so loving that it won't matter if you've sinned or repented or whatever because he loves you and you're all going to, to, to the kingdom. That is not 
accurate. That is a distortion in our modern world. It's sophistry. And sophistry is incredibly dangerous and deceptive. It can sound right that if Christ loves everybody, why would he not want everybody with him? Well, because people choose something different and he cannot break the rules of the universe. Mercy cannot rob justice. How many times have we heard and studied that? So let me say it again. There is a crucial difference between the commandment to forgive sin, which Christ had an infinite capacity to do, and the warning against condoning it, which he never, ever did even once. And then Elder Holland reminds us, as all our prophets remind us, nevertheless, he that repents and does the commandments of the Lord shall be forgiven. There is always a way back. Let us remember also that the end of this mortal life does not complete the end of the second estate or the probationary state in which we get to exercise our agency to choose what glory we want. This mortal life is part of that probationary estate, but it doesn't end until the end of the millennium. So there will be time for God to fulfill his promises to Israel, meaning making sure that everybody, not just Israel, but every child of God will get an opportunity with their eyes open to choose what level of glory they want, to choose how much of the good news they choose to accept and to make their own through their choices, through their behaviors. Now, remembering that this life is the time for men to prepare to meet God, but God understands extenuating circumstances. And if people have not been given a full opportunity here or have been blinded for something, can we not trust that God is fair? We have such love and concern for our children and other loved ones who are losing their way. Do we not think that God might be even kinder? Can't we give him that credit? And Christ reminds us of this again and again, right? Which of thee, if thy children ask of him bread, will give them a stone? Or a fish, a serpent? And then completing it, if you being evil, but he really means human in this context, if you being human, imperfect humans, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does God know how to give good gifts to you? In other words, we can be kind and compassionate about people who are losing their way. Don't we think God can be? Why would we think that we have to advocate for them by, by endorsing the mistakes they're making or the mistakes that they're, they're in their understanding or the mistaken conclusions they reach when they're in pain? President Oaks talked about this in his speech just in this most recent conference, April 2022, in his speech entitled Divine Love in the Father's Plan. Quoting President Oaks, when Jesus was asked, which is the great commandment in the law? He taught that to love God and to love our neighbors are the first of God's great commandments. Those commands are first because they invite us to grow spiritually by seeking to imitate God's love for us. I wish we all had a better understanding of the loving doctrine and policies that our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, have established in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now notice, I wish people would understand the loving doctrine and policies that God the Father and His Son Christ have established in the Church, because all of them are driven by love. They're motivated by love. They're encompassed with love. Everything that God does for us is out of His great love for us, and that includes Commandments and Policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. What I say here, President Oaks continues, seeks to clarify how God's love explains that doctrine and the Church's inspired policies. President Russell M. Nelson has reminded us that in God's eternal plan, salvation is an individual matter, but exaltation is a family matter. Fundamental to us, is God's revelation that exaltation can be attained only through faithfulness to the covenants of an eternal marriage between a man and a woman. Now, let's review that. Exaltation is the highest gift that God can give to his creations, to us, his children. It is the highest opportunity 
for a ringing out of joy in the eternities, for a complete fulfillment of our potential, a magnification of who we can be. And this can only happen if we are faithful to the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman that is sealed in the temple to be eternal, if we keep those covenants. Going on, Elder President Oak says, that divine doctrine is why we teach that gender is an essential characteristic of individual premortal, mortal, and eternal identity and purpose. Can I just say again that when this family proclamation was given in 1995, none of this was controversial. None of it was. Most of us listened to the words of this beautiful proclamation with kind of a, you know, yes, 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 Heard it before? Yes, I agree. Yes, of course. It seemed so self-evident. And in that world, it was. It is not God who changes. It is the world that changes. And the world has been turning in turmoil under our feet to come to a place where now these very basic truths are challenged and, and treated as if they're hate speech, when that is never the intent of God or his prophets. The intent is to show love by helping us understand where true happiness comes. What allows that to come into our lives? What allows fulfillment and progress and becoming in a way that completely magnifies our potential as children of God? And it comes in an eternal marriage between a man and a woman that is faithfully kept according to God's covenant. And this is why. We maintain and will maintain that gender is an essential characteristic of our eternal lives. President Oaks goes on, That is also why the Lord has required His restored church to oppose social and legal pressures to retreat from His doctrine of marriage between a man and a woman, to oppose changes that homogenize the differences between men and women or confuse or alter gender. Again, I'm repeating, That is also why the Lord has required his restored church to oppose social and legal pressures to retreat from his doctrine of marriage between a man and woman and to oppose changes that homogenize, or in other words, equal out and make disappear the differences between men and women, or to confuse or alter gender. These things are not the way to happiness. They are not. Again, I know there is great pain when people become confused in this way. I have, I've worked with people who've struggled with this. I haven't heard every story that's out there, but I have heard many. I understand that there is pain behind it. Not a desire to be evil. Not a desire to be bad. Not a desire to be miserable. But confusion that comes from that pain. And what President Oaks is reaffirming is that God cannot retreat from the very commandments, the very principles that allow us to have ultimate and eternal fulfillment and joy. How could he just throw them under the bus and say, okay, now the rules don't apply? Knowing that there will never be the same level of happiness, joy, and fulfillment in any other way. Continuing. The restored church's positions on these fundamentals frequently provoke opposition. We understand that. Our Heavenly Father's plan allows for opposition in all things, and Satan's most strenuous opposition is directed at whatever is most important to that plan. Consequently, he seeks to oppose progress toward exaltation by distorting marriage, discouraging childbearing, or confusing gender. However, we know that in the long run, the divine purpose and plan of our loving Heavenly Father will not be changed. Personal circumstances may change, and God's plan assures that in the long run, the faithful who keep their covenants will have the opportunity to qualify for every promised blessing. Brothers and sisters, you may know as I know of some people who do struggle with 
sexual attraction, same-sex attraction, or gender confusion, homosexual feelings, lesbianism, feeling gay, or identifying in these ways. But none of these identities should ever trump our identity as a child of God, who can learn and grow in our trust of God that He has our backs. He wants the very best for us, and that's why He cannot change the rules. These are eternal principles. He didn't create them arbitrarily. He lives in harmony with them, and he shares them with us because of that great love and because of his sure knowledge that this is the path, the way to total fulfillment, to total happiness and joy. As I started to say, we may know people who believe that even though they struggle. And they continue to live the commandments of God. They make and keep their sacred covenants. If they don't feel that a heterosexual marriage is consistent with their life's path in this mortal sphere, they continue forward with the faith and trust that that day will come, perhaps in the millennium, if not before, when they will find somebody of the opposite sex to complete this covenant. It doesn't have to happen in mortality. We have that thousand years of the millennium for these things to be completed for the faithful. But the test of this mortal life is to stay faithful to these covenants and to not let the voices of the world, the shouting and screaming of the world, tear us from our trust in God and pull us away from our faith that He speaks truth for our sakes, that everything He tells us is out of His great love for us and will be the very best if we trust and persist in our covenant keeping according to his word, not the words of the world. As followers of Christ who should love our fellow men, we should live peacefully with those who do not believe as we do. We are all children of a loving Heavenly Father, but with the love we owe to all of our neighbors, we always accept their decisions. We honor individual agency. In other words, if we have a loved one who chooses something different from the covenant path, maybe for a period of time in their lives, maybe for their whole lives, we honor that agency. We don't contend. We don't fight. We don't try to arm wrestle. We don't try to shame. We don't, we don't condemn way above our pay grade to condemn. We, we love them and we accept individual agency. But that does not mean we condone or promote or advocate. I think you know what I'm talking about. There are some groups that have emerged amongst members of the church that advocate for the church to change positions. They advocate for a loved one who is confused, in pain, and straying from the covenant path. While we have to honor agency and accept the decisions of others, we do not condone or advocate, or we are maybe missing our chance to pass our own Abrahamic test, where we are willing even to let this loved one go down their path because of their agency, but not go down that path with them, not to accept things that are contrary to God's word. I've talked to people who, when a loved, a beloved child often may decide that they want to be a different gender or they feel that they are a different gender, that parents sometimes go through their own faith crisis and they start to wonder if indeed God did put a female spirit in a male body or a male spirit in a female body, but he has never done that and he never will. It doesn't mean that those people are bad or evil or that that they are trying to be bad. It means that they are hurt and confused. And this is a very painful and confusing world. And if they have lost their way or identify in some way other than a child of God made in his image as male and female, we can continue to love them but should not advocate We should not lose our own faith in God's word. From 2 Nephi 31, verse 20, we must press forward having a love of God and of all men. 
I just want to mention that this theme has been very consistently addressed by our prophets in the last couple of decades. Then Elder Oaks gave a wonderful speech, worth a review if you haven't looked at it for a while, October 2009, called Love and Law. Again, emphasizing in a similar way, but with a different you know, focus on the same message that he gave in last conference here in April, that God's laws come out of his love. It's a wonderful speech. Check it out if you haven't seen it for a while. Just in, in the you know two conferences ago, October 2021, Elder D. Todd Christofferson, in a speech called The Love of God, wonderful, wonderful speech, again, saying that God's love does not mean he can save us in our sins, but only from them. He cannot change the rules. Because he loves us, he can't change the rules, because that would destroy his people, and it would destroy the great plan of happiness, and no one would be saved or exalted. But then emphasizing, as ever, as often as my people repent, will I forgive them their trespasses against me. If a loved one has made a mistake, they can come back. If we have made a mistake in advocating or endorsing, we can come back, and we can stand firm to the principles of God as revealed to our prophets. Trust in God, brothers and sisters. None of us is perfect parents. And sometimes when our children struggle, we let seeming feelings of guilt, thinking that, well, I wasn't perfect, maybe I messed up this kid, get in the way of our trust in the Lord. Or we let our fears of what might happen to this child get in the way of our trust in the Lord. But remember, love in the Lord and trust in the Lord cast out fear, and they cast out inappropriate guilt. Guilt must be reserved for sin. That's Boyd K. Packer. Such a great statement. Think on it. Meditate on it. Pray on it. It's not our guilt if our children make choices because they're confused or hurt or angry. Trust in the Lord. This is the answer to all of it, to trust in the Lord. Remember, it is a happy ending. It is a happy ending. I have not seen, neither hath ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of men the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And remember that he loves our children even more than we do. He will not forget them nor forsake them. Let us trust him. Let us let go and let God. We don't need to twist our own beliefs or abandon our own beliefs because of the pain of a child. We can be like Abraham. We can have that perfect trust in the Lord. Even though we don't understand all things, we can say, Thy will, not mine, be done. The example of our Savior Jesus Christ, that we do things the Lord's way and trust Him. That trust will never be betrayed. We can have unfailing trust in the Lord. This is the path of Abraham. This is the path of the prophets. This is the path of Jesus Christ. And He beckons us to come and follow Him on this path of trusting our Heavenly Father implicitly, trusting our Savior's love, and trusting His way, and not being seduced by the ways of the world or the sophistry of Satan. May the Lord bless each of us as we seek to acquire this faith of Abraham, this total trust in the Lord. We can do it. We can choose glory. We can build Zion. Thanks to my husband, Chris Anderson, and to Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care.